You are listening to the panel on RNZ National. Nick Leggett and Sue Kedgley with us today. And on this day in 1992, 1992 is going back a bit, isn't it? George Michael and Sir Elton John, as he is now, went to number one in the US singles chart with Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. Also, it was a number one in the UK. And all the proceeds from that single went to AIDS charities. Now, of course, Sir Elton was in the country just last weekend. Aucklanders, of course, missing out due to the floods. Just that one concert down in Christchurch. Sue, were you lucky enough to see Elton John? Not this time. Not this time, yeah. but previously. I mm. think he's absolutely fabulous. I love him. I did note that um, somehow he managed to, it seemed, get into his private jet and fly out on, the, uh, on that uh, horrific evening last Friday. Not sure how he did that. But yes, what a tragedy to have two concerts yes, both of lost them. in this way. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Nick, are you a bit of a fan? Uh, yes, I am. And I, I saw him, I think he came to Wellington. He did. Yeah, when, it was yeah. a bit sort of eight or nine back. years ago. Yeah. And uh, it was fantastic. And he, I do recall on that occasion, he flew out in his private jet that the night of the, after he, he finished the concert. You he know? did after the Christchurch <laughs> yeah. one too. Yeah. yeah, astonishing. And did you ever see George Michael? Either no. Of no. He was pretty good. Yeah. Inspiring to see. So isn't he 75, Elton John, or is he inspiring I to see? I actually don't know how old. He's in his 70s, certainly, mm, yeah, and yeah. an extraordinary talent. And very sad to see those two Auckland concerts being cancelled amongst the very many things that have gone on in Auckland in the last few days. Um, an absolutely extraordinary talent, whether we will ever see him back in New Zealand, I suspect not. No, he's almost 76. 76. Almost 76. Mm. Yeah, well, great to see 76-year-olds performing these brilliant concerts yeah. around the world. Hope for us all. <laughs> <laughs> now, lots and lots of people getting in touch with us here at RNZ National on the panel today. This one in uh, saying on the weather, uh, would be great to hear the Marlborough District be mentioned as well. Two years yes. running major weather events. And, of course, the loss of the road, yes, State Highway 6. Yeah, mm. it was a terrible situation, that one. Lots of businesses across the region, too, absolutely. And um, I have to say, we were driving on State Highway 6 just after it opened, the week after it opened. And some amazing engineering work has yes. been done on that, a real feat. And so quickly. So quickly, yeah, really impressive stuff, actually. Lots of you getting in touch as well on... Payway fees. Uh, this one says no payway fees in Australia. So what are they actually charging for? Oh. There is no additional oh. cost for the banks, this texture says. The retailers oh. already have to pay for the machines. Uh, Brian in Auckland saying payway fees are a cost of business to the business. It shouldn't be shoved onto consumers, he says, but it should be absorbed by the merchant or included in their pricing. Um, consumers should be pushing back and resisting. Thank you, Brian, for getting in touch with us. Also, Jen is in touch on this one, saying on PayWave, it's the only choice when parking the car sometimes right. and having to pay an extra That's 75 right. cents. Yeah, on the, on the parking tickets Which in Wellington. is a lot. That's right. That's a lot of money. Um, on schools also, Jan has been in touch, saying the flip-flop on schools is because the principals complained. Part of the reason they closed the schools was because quite a few were flooded. Imagine if children mm. had been hurt or worse, drowned because of the flooding, they can't win. I think, Jan, you're probably right. Mm. They are in a situation flooded, where think. they can't mm. win. And oh, just the idea of having to mop up mm. houses and schools and businesses. Um, absolutely terrible situation in Auckland. And all the very best to people who are in the midst of trying to deal with all of that. 2101 to get in touch with us today on the panel. Uh, you are with... Susie Ferguson and also with Sue Kedgley and Nick Leggett. Now we're going to be talking about the situation with... 
The ferries, of course, after the Kaitaki inter-islander lost power in the Cook Strait on Saturday, passengers in life jackets. A mayday was called on that one. Uh, the ferry, of course, drifting towards rocks. Finally, the anchors did hold. But what if they hadn't? Mm. Because do we have the tugboat capability needed if there are problems with the ferries or indeed other boats and ships in the strait? Now, we did contact Centreport. They had no one available to talk to us. Mm-hmm. Grant Nolder, though, the Wellington Regional Harbour Master, is able to talk with us. Kia ora, Grant, how are you? Kia ora, good afternoon. So the situation here, how close a call was it? When the captain of the ship decides it's a mayday situation, um, there isn't anything else to escalate to after that. So it, it was a very serious situation. Is it the kind of thing that happens often? I mean, how many of these situations have you seen in your time? Uh, this one. OK, so that tells you how often it happens. Yes, uh, yes. And infrequent. So, in, indeed, thankfully infrequent. But when it happens, um, what is the capability of the tugboats in this kind of situation? Would they have been able to do anything? Well, on the night, um, the Centreport tugs, they had crews on board because they were getting ready for a tanker arrival. And when they were informed about what was going on, they immediately headed out there. Um, it was it would have been very unpleasant journey, but they got out there in good time and they were standing by. When they got there, the anchors were already holding on the Kaitaki. So um, I, I've yet to actually speak directly with the tag masters, but I understand they felt they could have got uh, lines onto the ship to assist them. Mm. Um, how that would have gone, we don't know, thankfully, because it wasn't tested. Um, I have no doubt that they would have put everything into providing assistance. But the, the tugs that we have, they are upgraded a number of years ago from the, the previous tugs, and they are a lot more powerful and they're designed to deal with the bigger ships that we're seeing in Wellington on a regular basis, the cruise ships, the larger container ships and the like. So they are very well suited for manoeuvring the ships in the harbour on and off the berths. They are not laid out and designed for towing type of work. Right. So this is the difference, I suppose. And what is the um, the balance, if you like, between doing some kind of work within the harbour versus actually dealing with this out in the open strait, in the open water? Um, balance is the right word. There's been a lot of talk about salvage tugs, and they are big specialist bits of equipment and just not feasible for us at all. It's huge infrastructure, but it's actually a slightly different tug that has a little bit different layout and some different gear on board is is a really good compromise that will do everything that the harbour tugs will do, but it's it's another tool that could be useful um, should a situation like this happen again. So does Wellington need some kind of higher capability like that because you know the bottom line is that we've got hundreds of people going back and forth thousands of people going back and forth across the Cook Strait uh, on any given day and if something happens are we in a position if something happens on the Cook Strait to do something about it? Yeah it's roughly a million passengers a year on Mm. the Cook Strait ferries Um, and it all gets very specific on the conditions. Mm. Um, 
you know, it's been said that the, the tugs are not ideal. However, on the night, in quite bad conditions, they were there and standing by the ferry. Mm. So it's not like we have no capability, but I would be happier with slightly improved capability. Because mm, I'm absolutely sure that the tugs and the crews on board would have been doing everything in their power um, if it had come to it. But the bottom line Absolutely. is, you know, you don't want people to be putting their lives at risk um, and you don't want people to be in a situation where they're potentially having to overreach what they're actually able to do. You know, so this is the difficulty, isn't it? That what yeah. actually would the tugs, if they'd got lines on to the ferry, if they'd needed to do something, what actually would they have been able to do? Um, that would have been quite a, um, a dynamic situation and one that we would have would have, would have got tested on the night. Um, in an ideal world, they would have been towed it back to Wellington, but an, an equally good possibility was if they just stopped it going further towards the shore, mm. that would have kept the vessel safe. On the so other hand, have, Grant... Um you know, I, I, I sort of, as someone who's uh, crossed Cook Strait many times, you know, one of the most treacherous uh, pieces of water in the uh, in the world, probably. Um, I was acute and with some relatives uh, on the on mm. the ferry. I was sitting there because basically you had a gale force southerly blowing this ship towards the rocks, and. Um, and, and and so, you know, I, I, and a mayday call means grave and imminent danger. Mm. Some said there was only minutes away. Thank God for the, uh, you know, the, the anchors holding. Mm. But one of the recommendations from the inquiry into the Wahine disaster was that it was essential that Wellington had a seaworthy tug that could pull a sort of 22,000 ton ship off the rocks. And we used to have one. And then we... Um, it was got rid of four years ago, and of course you, Grant, came to the regional council when I was there, asking for a new seaworthy tug, which I strongly supported. Centreport claimed it couldn't afford it. They've gone to the government, but isn't really the f- truth of the matter. And you know you're in an awkward position, probably, but we desperately need, as a content contingency, yeah. a um, seaworthy uh, tug, because I'm told that those two tugs wouldn't have been able to hold the ship, and it's simply a matter of finding the money for it. And, and the Ministry of Transport saying, oh no, we don't fund tugs. Well, someone has got to get together and f- fund this tug. Um, yes, yes, I agree. I'm, I'm not too concerned where the funding comes from, but I would like to see it. Um, I think to say the tugs wouldn't have been able to assist is... They could assist, but they couldn't have pulled it off. Well, that's what people I know in the know say. And and Grant, the other thing is we've got these two massive new ferries being built by Kiwi Rail. What what happens then when they come in in, what, a couple of years' time? What happens? So there are a couple of things there. Um, So the tugs the harbour were built at the time, 1974, were good for the ships that they were dealing with. But over that time, Mm. we've seen a significant increase. They had a bollard pull, which is a measure of the tug's power of 28 tonnes. These new ones have got 68 tonnes, so there is a lot more power there, but it's, towing is a little bit more complex than that, and it's, it's, it's how they, they use that power. And the, these ones weren't the best ones. When um, 
but when you were on the council and I was um, talking about it then, that was the pre-COVID, lots of cruise ships, and there was um, discussion about possibly mm. getting a third tug. And what we were looking at was, can we influence what that third tug was? COVID came along, everything changed, and the third tug disappeared in the mist. Nonetheless, though, what? those cruise ships are back. I saw one coming in this morning. And not morning. only that, Grant, I still remember the, my shock at the number. You would report every month on the near misses and that of ships in the Wellington Harbour. And there was a, you know, there'd be a container ship and some um, Chinese captain couldn't understand English or whatever. There were a whole lot of incidences. Yeah. So it just seems to me this is essential It's as a contingency. It is, but what we need to look at is whatever we get to address this, it's actually got to have a day-to-day job as well because sure. having it sitting there mm. waiting doesn't work. So from my point of view, it's working with Centreport because at the moment they have tugs and when they look at changing the fleet, we need to um, try and influence and however we support that. That could be years away. Um, um, yeah, it's a little bit unknown. Um, maybe Saturday's um, incident might change that time. I hope so. It I should. don't know. It should. It's part of an ongoing discussion. Just yeah, very, certainly. very briefly there, Grant, as well. I mean, clearly um, an awful situation, but also a very difficult one, I suppose, for. Um, you know, for inter-islander, because when you've got that many people that are booked on the ferry, you know, was it a line call regarding the weather mm. as to whether that ship should have been crossing the strait but, but, in the first especially place? Especially since it had had s- several engine issues, if not failures, just uh, in the previous weeks. Yes, I'm, not, I'm unsure of the detail of those. Mm. The weather on the day wasn't extreme. It wasn't actually close to their operating limits mm. um, so it was a it, it wouldn't have been a great crossing but it um, uh, yeah it wasn't a bad one yeah. um, so I, I don't think that's a factor as, as a okay. combination of events um, if it had been a Norwest gale which we do very well here in Wellington as well the ship <laughs> would have been perfectly safe but for the passengers they would have watched the North Island sort of disappear into the mist while they got the engine started so Mm. It, was, it was a combination of events that that led to that one, um, and it, no, they do a lot of crossings every year. They sure do. They sure do. Even even with hiccups, I mean, passenger ships have more redundancy than your standard cargo ships. Mm. Only on this case, they found a weakness that that yeah. wasn't redundant. Grant, thank you very much for joining us on the panel today. Uh, that is Wellington Regional Harbour Master Grant Nolder there. Uh, and you are with the panel on RNZ National, Nick Leggett and Sue Kedgley with me today. We're going to talk about a situation in Australia now. The Prime Minister welcoming a decision from the government over the ditch to soften its 501 deportation policy. Now, this was signed off by the Australian government uh, last night. Pretty controversial policy. It means from March, the duration of someone's stay in Australia and the strength of their ties to Australia will be taken into account on deportation decisions. Now this issue of course of 501s has been repeatedly raised by New Zealand Prime Ministers with their counterparts. Philippa Payne joining the panel, founder of Route 501 and also a spokesperson of Iwi in Oz. Kia ora Philippa. Kia ora. So what is your reading of this situation that will come into force in March? 
Um, I think it's fantastic that in movement, it's taken seven years to see a crack in it. Um, it's wonderful that people are going to have a broader spectrum to place an appeal on, but it doesn't go far enough by any means. Well, people are still going to be placed in Australian immigration detention centres under mandatory situation, and those places are just abhorrent. They can no longer exist. What is the situation for people that have already been deported under the policy? Will they be able to appeal? Well, apparently at the moment there is no change, but we are clarifying some of the um, wording in there because it does say the wording compassionate grounds for re-entry, but it does not state what reasons they would be and who would be entitled to them. Okay, so this is clearly very, very new policy. It's just been confirmed in, mm-hmm. you know, really in the last few hours. Um, mm-hmm. Possibility that there could still be some fish hooks here if the person in question who is uh, in the situation where they could be deported, if they still pose a risk uh, at the point that they are being released, they could be deported. So this is still something that we could see being perpetuated. Of course. Now, this um, changing from family ties and the length of ties going from a consideration to a, a primary point now that actually is wonderful, but if you fail any primary point, you are still liable for deportation. So while they might meet the, the grounds that used to have had a long time in Australia, they may fail under any other category, which means that their deportation will take place. So we're still working through, I suppose, trying to understand exactly what all of this means. Um, do you think that there has been a reasonable place or the line has been drawn in a reasonable place on this, Philippa? No, I don't. I don't think so because I've been to the detention centres in Australia myself repetitively. I have sat and talked with people and their families and the abuses that occur in detention centres can no longer be ignored by New Zealand or by anyone in this globe. Mm. I'm going to open this up to the panel that we have with us here, Sue Kedgley. Um, It's coming ahead of Chris Hipkins, new Prime Minister, uh, off to Canberra next week, I think on Tuesday, I think, next week. Um, Are you seeing this as a bit of a win for the pressure that New Zealand has been applying here? Well, it's sort of, you know, it's better than nothing. But, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't go nearly far enough because the policy uh, should be ditched. And it just strikes me that it's incredibly ironic that Australia was founded as a penal settlement where you had the British government washing its hands of prisoners by exporting them across uh, the world Mm -hmm. to Australia. And here we have Australia a couple of years, a couple of centuries later, doing exactly the same thing. It's so inhumane, it's ridiculous and it should be scrapped. Nick Leggett. I'm interested to know if you think that, given the fact that now the Department of Home Affairs has to consider the length of time that someone has lived in, an Austra- in, in Australia mm. as one of the considerations um, as to whether they cancel their visa. Surely that must be a, a win. We must have taken a, a step towards a better situation. Mm, I disagree. As a person that has spoke to numerous people in detention today, we've got people that have been in um, Australia for 37 years and now been in detention for two years. None of these amendments will affect them. All of their children are over the age of 18. So that means that they're not a dependent. So surely there'll be fewer people ending up in detention, though, won't there, if this is is applied? Well, this is Section 501. We don't talk about Section 116 very often, which is still very much there. And under Section 116, if anyone is charged with a crime, 
under um, certain categories it's mandatory detention before they even go to the judicial system. So while we might be having a win in one area, which is great, please don't think that I'm not acknowledging all the hard work that has gone on to get this crack. It's about the fact that this is nowhere near enough. And if we're going to sit down here and think that this is it, we've been hoodwinked because we are the country that has been impacted the most in Australia and in our society. What are people saying to you? You you know, you've talked about the people who are in detention. What kinds of things have you been hearing? Hope. There's hope. I mean, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that lives are lost in detention every single day. And three days ago, a life was lost. So we're talking about hope in a place where despair is rampant. And one of the other things that I would really like New Zealand to acknowledge is mm. if we don't take the lead in this and we don't start pushing, we're at the point now where we've got 3,000 deportees. How are we going to handle 10,000? Because that's what the likely look is going to happen. Mm. Appreciate it your time. continuous and never stop. Yeah. Really interesting to talk to you as ever. Thank you, Philippa Payne there from uh, Route 501. At five minutes to five, uh, this is an interesting one. Um, and I'll be interested to hear uh, what you've got to say about this one. Sue Kedgley, I think I'll come to you shortly. A promising teenage athlete has declined to represent Great Britain in a competition in Australia because of the environmental impact. So should more of us be making hard calls like this teenager? Uh, of course, this is also coming while the debate continues in Aotearoa about a plan for a new runway in Taras in central Otago. So joining us now on the panel, climate researcher and applied mathematics distinguished professor Robert McLaughlin is with us now. Hi there. You're Hearing this one today about the situation for this athlete, a really tough decision choosing not to compete, um, but pretty interesting uh, coming at this sort of time. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I don't know that she did find it a hard decision to make. Um, can I just read you a sentence from the letter that she mm. wrote to British Athletics? She said, I would never be comfortable flying in the knowledge that people could be losing their livelihoods, homes and loved ones as a result. The least I can do is voice my solidarity with those suffering on the front line of climate breakdown. That's pretty powerful. Um, mm. She w- would have been flying from the UK to Australia for the World Cross Country Champs. Mm. And uh, she's a very promising athlete. She's set the, the uh, national record for the under 17, 3,000 metres. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a big call. And of course, and, the, impact, know, the impact here is very much, uh, because I suppose it's an individual decision, it it falls on her in terms of, yes, I suppose the leadership that she is showing, but then the other side of that is that it's it's her career, it's a a competition that she's not going to be able to be a part of. That's right. Uh, Well, she will be able to still develop her career, but not in quite the same way. Mm. But the uh, the impact of climate activism like this can be, you know, pretty powerful. Uh, People in Auckland have been losing their homes and loved ones as a result of uh, the damage from mm. climate change. This really shines, shines a direct light on it. Sue Kedgley, I'm going to come to you on this one. What's your, um, 
What's your kōrero here? Well, I, I greatly admire her courage, and I think it reflects the mood of the younger generation who are completely fed up with our foot-dragging and uh, inaction on climate change. But it does highlight, too, the uncomfortable uh, truth that a lot of us would prefer to ignore, which is that um, flying is the most energy-intensive activity we can do and explodes a person's footprint, carbon footprint. Nick Leggett, should it be up to individuals to have to make this hard choice? Well, I think it it, it is an individual choice, so, mm. and, I, and I think it should remain that way. And I think that people who choose, as this individual has done, um, and draw attention to the issues of climate change should be congratulated. And, and that's that's the reality. And I, But I would say this. Mm. I'm optimistic that we are building really good alternative technologies in flight, but, but also in, in other transport, that will uh, decarbonise um, our, our travel over But will time. it happen fast enough? Yes, over I've, time? Yes, but, I, well, 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 you've got you, seven do, more years do you to stop, halve do you our stop every, Do you stop everything? Or do you keep building and keep growing to, to, to fund the research and the development to, to come up with the alternative? Let's that's, hope that's you're the right. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that this is one that will run and run, and no doubt <laughs> will be returned to on the panel and indeed probably in living rooms around the country. Thank you very much to Robert McLaughlin there, uh, Distinguished Professor. Also thank you to Nick Leggett and to Sue Kedgley. You've been listening to the panel on RNZ National. Lovely to have your company today. Lisa Owen next with Checkpoints.